I knew deep down, like nobody else can hear this, but I hear that this isn't for me and that it is the better decision to not go. And having to trust that gut instinct, that inner voice was really all I had in that moment. Like that's what gave me that sense of this is more important to listen to than, the, than that external chatter. I explore my own inner world on a regular basis. Now, that's not always been the case, but now I carefully examine beliefs feelings and actions and get curious about where they've come from. I linger on what challenges me until I can feel their texture, their form, their viscosity. I take my time because this process is not efficient. Often it's not even pleasant, but I dig deep into the process, or at least I try, because that's the work of leading myself and others well. A lot of intention to feel hard things is needed to understand all that contributes to how we respond to ourselves and others as we move through the spaces where we live and lead. (laughs) I know. Who wants to feel fear or shame or humiliation? I get it. And the resistance to going back to challenging times in our lives is definitely understandable. In addition to the sheer discomfort we often feel turning inward, much of what is taught in personal and professional development spaces feels the dangerous belief if we feel something negative, we're manifesting it more, or just self-sabotaging. Yet when we protect ourselves from moving through these emotions and understanding what they're connected to, They end up running our lives, our relationships, and even how we work. And yet when I befriend my difficult emotions, I lead courageously instead of letting my difficult emotions lead me. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, again and again, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I absorbed the message that my goal was to power over difficult emotions, to shut them down at all costs, was told to leave it in the past. And when fear showed up, I'm supposed to fake it till I make it right. Shame, I was told just to hustle and people please or over deliver in all I do so I don't disappoint people. Oh gosh, and when doubt comes up, I felt as if I was supposed to act as if I knew it all and never ask for help. Yowza. I am grateful there are shifts in how we approach our inner world, but I feel like we're in a collective hangover right now as we unlearn these toxic ways of viewing emotions, difficult life experiences, and just being human. And the commitment to understand unpleasant feelings or aspects of ourselves is not any less daunting. It's hard work to discover why we can't set and maintain boundaries or deepen the courage to speak up when the stakes are high. Our capacity for discomfort creates our capacity to lead with courage. But simply put, feeling often feels dangerous and we put a lot of effort into shutting down our discomfort. Our ability to work with our emotions helps us lead through our emotions. Yet this is the exact space where we achieve the changes we desire inside us and around us. I know I talk a lot about inner work and its importance, but what the heck does that really mean? I sense you get what inner work means, but to articulate it, well, that took a moment to put words to the practice of inner work. 
And without clarity on what inner work involves can lead to a lot of confusion. And if we can't articulate this important work, how can we know what the heck we're doing when we're doing it and doing it in a way that really supports us and those around us? Inner work involves an intention to better understand why we do and feel and respond the way we do. And when we develop a regular practice of reflecting on why we do and what we do, it turns into a way of being and a way of leading when urges and emotions and judgments come up. And I believe inner work involves the practice of understanding our story, our unique nervous system, and having a relationship with our beliefs feelings, and physical sensations in a way that I can work with what comes up for me instead of trying to exile my discomfort. And when we do inner work, we end up taking responsibility for our own needs, our wounds, our experiences. We listen to our discomfort and get curious about what we need instead of trying to distance those parts of us that need our support. Sure, this kind of awareness without action fosters more individualism. But when we deepen our awareness of what happens internally, it can also deepen our impact in the world around us. And when we lead with more courage, compassion, and confidence, that has a much needed ripple effect outside of us. Now, my unburdened leader guest today lives this practice in a deeply human and accessible way that encourages and also inspires. Formerly the online managing editor for Darling, She then shifted into freelance food and travel writing while working with different brands on editorial and copy content. Ziza Bauer is currently the content editor at Magnolia. Yes, the Joanna and Chip Gaines Magnolia. (laughs) Pay attention to how Ziza navigated the opinions of others and how these external opinions conflicted with her own intuition when making a big career decision. Listen to how she views social media and discerns what to share and when to share. And notice her connection between the inner work we do as leaders and content creators and how to grow our capacity for courageous decisions, no matter what is coming at us. Now, please welcome Ziza Bauer to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Ziza, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. So glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. There's a lot that I want to dig into today, but I want to start off with just a little bit of your background. Um, You've been a writer, you've been a content creator, an editor, a brand consultant. You've been in that space for several years now, but you started off in your academic studies, not in writing, but studying pre-med. So I'd love for you to tell me what was going through your head the day you decided not to go to medical school because you'd gotten into UCLA and then decided to go on a different path. Yeah. So, uh, the day, man, I wish it was just a day of a decision, you know, that I made in a day. So I was doing uh, cardiology research at UCLA, but I was actually going to go to med school in Cincinnati. So back in Ohio. Oh. Yeah. So that was also part of weighing that decision of knowing I was going to have to leave and move back to Ohio and definitely a big decision. Something that if I'm honest with myself had been a decision I was wrestling with and had probably made in my gut months, years before, but just hadn't really let myself sit deeply with what I was stepping into until it was time to actually step into it. And I had to really face that decision and and walk through it. And so with medicine, I think for a long time that had felt 
like the right thing to do, that it felt like when I was, you know, my teens and early 20s trying to picture who I was going to be and the life I was going to have and how really I wanted other people to see me and praise me and celebrate me as well. Medicine was an easy yes. It was the thing that, oh, that's respectable, that has purpose, that has job security, that can make a lot of money. It was all these boxes that seemingly checked for me, even though before that, even before high school, as a kid, what came naturally to me, what lit me up, what brought me joy wasn't being a doctor. It was writing, dancing, acting, writing movies and filming them. And, um, you know, there are pictures of me before I could even read or write, like scribbling in notebooks. And that, that was just who I was as a kid. And yet going into college, I just felt like, well, that's just a different part of me. That's not the part of me that has to be professional and has to be an adult. That's just, you know, a hobby. And so when I finally was presented with medical school as a reality, it was also very interesting that I, of all places in the world, found myself living in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, in a city that is surrounded by people chasing their passions and just putting it all on the line and giving it their all and going after what had always lit them up, you know, being an actor, being a director, making movies, artists. And for me, I think I really had that sense that I don't know if medicine is that passion for me. And I know I work hard. I know someday if I decide, you know, in my fifties or sixties, I really want to go to med school. I can get in again. I did it once. I can do it again, but I won't always be in my twenties. I won't always have this opportunity to see what else I could have done and not wanting to face the regret of, Oh, what if, what if I had done something else? That was what eventually prompted me to decide, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, let the admission go and see what else can, can, can come up. So what were you worried would happen if you made the wrong choice about medical school? Like what were the stakes for you around that? I think more than anything, what was probably the biggest motivator at the time or fear at the time was like, what are other people going to think of me after medicine had always represented this bigger picture of the way people would look at me, the way people would respect me, the way I could sort of contrive this idea of who I was externally to give that up. Then I suddenly saw it also from that external perspective of like, oh, wow, is she dumb? Why did she give that up? Like who would give up that career? Did she, oh, maybe she was lying about ever even getting accepted. And, you know, I just sort of let all of these thoughts flood my head of like, what are other people thinking, having to deal with even other people in my lab, you know, I was working for the chief of cardiology and all these very respectable physicians and researchers, and they had known I was applying to med school. I had gotten into med school. They had written me recommendations and having to navigate that feeling of letting them down, of letting myself down, just, just a worry that I was going to end up always regretting this decision because I, I didn't have anything else to offer. This was my one shot at success. And I had given it up. You know, I've got this picture of you that you painted as, as a kid doing a lot of this like creative, you know, writing and play acting and these different things that you mentioned and then separating from that saying, oh, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. And again, that was fueled by this external sense of, you know, external sense of validation or like this is what I'm supposed to do and what others think I'm supposed to do. And then even coming up to this decision of you being true to you, like it, 
it sounds like just the idea of going to medical school, like what was that feeling like right before you wrote that email? What was going on with you emotionally and physically? Because I know for me before I, when I'm in a place where I'm on a path that is not resonating, it starts to like affect me even physically. Like my body starts to just not shut down, but get really uncomfortable. Yeah, I think there is that inner gut instinct, that inner voice, that inner knowing that I think I've always had and I've always been sensitive to. And yet, like many things in life, we're just told not to give into it, not to listen to it or to ignore it or to tamper it down. And for me, it had been that like rising feeling of like, this won't make sense to anybody else, but I just know I'm not supposed to go. I just know there's something else I could be doing, something else that would bring me more joy that I would be better at and that lights me up. And even if, you know, like I was saying, knowing what everyone else could look at that decision and, and make their own judgments about why I wasn't going anymore. I knew deep down, like nobody else can hear this, but I hear that this isn't for me. And that is the better decision to not go and having to trust that gut instinct, that inner voice was really all I had in that moment. Like that's what gave me that sense of, this is more important to listen to than the, than that external chatter. That self-trust is a real growing up moment, isn't it? Coming into your own moment. So how did those around you end up responding to your decision? How did they respond when you're like to, to the lab folks you worked with in the lab and your family and your friends? My family. So my parents are both artists. They're very bohemian, very like it always kind of felt like a bit of an outlier that I was going to go to med school. So when I told them, I wasn't going. They were they were both just like, well, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> they <laughs> they were very very okay with it. And enough of the people in my life who were really close to me had always sort of seen me weighing this decision and really nobody else, like my college best friends, my friends at the time, like nobody else was in a super scientifically driven uh career to where I didn't feel like I was working out this decision with with peers or colleagues kind of in the same vein. It was a lot of artists. It was a lot of already um, artistically inclined people who were working in the industry, entertainment industry or elsewhere. So it, it, they all kind of affirmed like, yeah, if it doesn't feel right, you know, go with what feels right. But with the lab in, like specifically, it was hard. It was, it was a weird moment, which is why I knew I couldn't stay working in the lab much longer once I decided not to go because it's kind of like, well, are you just going to stay this assistant researcher technician forever? There's such a hierarchy in academics and medicine. Like you don't, if you're not going for the top, what are you doing? That's kind of the, the vibe. So yeah, it was uncomfortable for a while, but I had to just settle in it and sit in it. And, and a lot of the people who I did work with at the same time, they weren't outwardly disparaging. They were all encouraging. And even my boss, you know, the chief of cardiology, he was writing a book in his spare time. So it's interesting that he also had these inclinations of other things that he enjoyed and wanted to pursue. How did the season of studying biology and anatomy inform your work today as a writer and an editor? Oh, it definitely does. I think the thing I do love about biology, you know, not to say none of it was ever attractive to me. I love science and I love biology because there's such a story essentially behind all the parts and pieces of how the world 
and our bodies fit together, there's a reason behind everything works the way that it does. And I think coming into writing and editing, I'm bringing that lens of, okay, well, what's the point of this? How is this connecting to this? this? There's always a bigger picture. There's always a reason these things are doing and responding and shifting, playing off each other. And with writing, I, I bring that same curiosity of figuring out, okay, well, how, what is this saying? How is this communicating something? And where's the missing piece here? Where do I have to research a bit more before writing about this? Or when pulling a story together, who else, what are my sources? Where else do I need to kind of talk to and get more of a research background, bringing that to the story. But I think really the interconnectedness of seeing how things play off of each other is largely from that biological background. Wow. You know, and I, I guess I keep going back to, too, and I, I just feel like so many people can relate to this, that you, you, you were raised by artists. You're, you're, it sounds like your peer group were in, in the creative space, obviously in the LA Hollywood, you know, genre, all the whole space of just whatever it's fashion, writing, <laughs> acting, that, that was your, your social community. And then you're in this lab for four years and, and, and like, I'm going to med school and this path of just like where so many of us get on this path of this is what I should do. And we, we separate from our truth and then we have to come home to it, you know, and, and, and so many, some people don't. And I, I, my generous assumptions, there might've been some people in that lab that were probably, whether they acknowledge it or not, a little envious going probably like, good for you. <laughs> You know, because sure. it's a brutal journey as much as I, I, I have such a respect. I've got doctors in my family with such a respect um, for that space, that whole journey. <laughs> it really is separating the humanity out of you so that you can be, you know, a precision, whatever yeah. it is you do. But it's it's so I, I just it's an interesting it's an interesting point that so many people relate to of like separating from truth because that does that can't be right. That can't be good enough. That can't be secure, whatever the story is, but we, we always have to come home to our truth. So, so I'm glad. Thanks. Thanks for talking about that. I want to shift a little bit to your writing. You know, you've written about beauty and culture and food. We've talked a lot about the food. Um, but one thing I've, as I've followed your career is you, you do all these things and write, but you're not in the spotlight. You don't, there's, there's, there's been a real intentionality. It seems of not centering yourself, even in social media, you're so private and very intentional with what you share. And and I've always been intrigued by that because it hasn't been something you've tied your success professionally or your identity to. And there's a restraint that I don't see a lot of folks have these days. And so can you tell me what's going through your mind when you're considering what to share publicly and, and what you choose to share in your writing or on social media and what you choose to keep private. What's, what's your process with that? It's probably several things. I think the honest answer also is I can be a little shy and reserved just in general. It takes a lot for me to open up. And I think seeing social media go from its infancy, infancy, you know, I remember when it had just come to universities and it was at my college and you know, I got on it and Facebook was this weird thing. And I showed it to a couple girlfriends and they're like, what? You just look up people. This is weird. This is creepy. I'm like, yeah, you're right. This is creepy. I'm going to get off. And then a couple years later, everyone was on it. And then fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years later, the whole world is on it and it's just become what it is. And so I think having that remember, like that memory of 
this was a creepy, you know, at the beginning, it was this weird unknown thing, but yet it's always been a tool. It hasn't been the goal in and of itself. And I think I just, I've always had a very clear line for me that I remember life before social media, you know, I'm not that old, but I increasingly that's a rarity to find someone that remembers that and getting to a place where you know, I don't want to completely, you know, malign it and say it's not good for anything. It's terrible because it is social media is a good thing for businesses. It's great for connecting and staying in touch with people as a freelance person. It's, you know, kind of valuable. But for myself, I, I've always wanted to keep it in that light of this is a tool. This isn't the goal. And when I'm using it for myself, when I'm thinking about well, what do I want to share on this thing? <laughs> How do I want to connect with people? I want to be adding something to a space and I really, I want to feel like even if this only resonates with one other person, there's a, there's a point to me sharing what I'm sharing. And so, you know, everyone sort of uses it for different things for, you know, sharing the vacation photos, for sharing the kid photos, for, you know, curating this image to have a brand and have a business. But for myself, as I've really tapped into what feels right and authentic for me, and then thinking about my writing and where I can connect with people in writing, I really try and keep what I share something that at the end of the day I'm putting out because I feel like this is this is helping, this is adding to the space, this maybe is a thought to think about that someone else, if they engage with my content, they'll leave feeling better or lighter or not even necessarily lighter in a happier sense, but just less alone or more opened up to maybe mystery or wonder just think there's so much on social media now that can feel divisive and frustrating and you know that's the tip of the iceberg but for me i just yeah i just feel like when i get a thought or something to share it really does tap into more of my intuitive side when i when it comes to writing and sometimes i'll just have a thought truthfully i don't even know where it comes from sometimes but it'll just be this intense feeling of I just need to share this and I just need to kind of let this flow and write or put these certain t- things together and share it. And even if it's, you know, one person or 10 people that are like, wow, I really needed to read that today. Or, you know, thanks for sharing. That to me is like the best part of social media that it, that it fosters those little momentary connections of you're not alone. There's more than meets the eye and we're okay. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of what I filter through when I'm sharing. And then, you know, from a a more personal side, yeah, just, I've just always been very cautious and now, you know, being a mom and having a child too, just very sensitive to, we just don't know truthfully that's such an emerging field of social media. We don't know who's data mining, who is using this information. And so with my child now in particular, you know, I just can't help but see him as his own individual. And until, you know, while he's in my care and I'm responsible for raising him, I also want to respect his individuality and not, so that's just been my personal filter of, I don't want to share his face. I don't want to share a ton about him. I can connect with myself as a mom and how I'm feeling personally, but when it comes to sharing about him, that just something for me, I feel just doesn't sit right in that, in that regard. So everyone has their own boundary lines of what feels right for them and what they want to share. But for me, it's to use social media as a tool to make sure I'm using it in a way that feels hopeful and engaging for myself personally, 
this is a real, I think a really big permission slip for a lot of people. A lot of people I know, a lot of people I work with feel like, oh, I, I need to be doing more on social media and I need to, and I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, for obviously we, you know, you have a real clarity of intention. It's not a place where it's connected to your business. Some people use it for their business for you, like, and, and they've done well, but that's not the norm. And it's taking a toll. I'm seeing more and more people saying, I'm going offline. I'm hanging out in like this space, this Patreon newsletter, or you know, this has become more and more like, I feel better when I'm off. And, and so that your intention's a big deal. What are some other boundaries that you have around social media and, and what maybe still threatens those you honoring those boundaries around social media? Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. I think I've learned to feel out what feels right in my body. And it's been, it's still a process of, you know, like you said before that coming home to yourself. And for me, a lot of self-discovery, a lot of inner workings, I love that sense of self-discovery and, you know, I'm an introvert at heart. So give me, you know, a cave and a candle and a book and a journal, like I'm fine. But that process of, of self-discovery and really feeling out and giving myself the freedom to, to say like, yeah, that doesn't feel right for me. Or I don't know if I align with that or if I agree with that and feeling that new renewed sense of, of self, I see how tricky social media can then become when you're excavating yourself, your soul in the world, just trying to become a human being that social media makes it really easy to put that all in grids and on stories and in filters. And suddenly you don't really have to do that deep work as much, but you can make it look like you are. And I've really felt convicted and, um, you know, just have, have wrestled with that in my own heart. So I'm not saying anything that I haven't first gone through of well, how do I craft this image of myself? And, and you know, and it kind of comes back to that original like medical pursuit for me of how do I craft this external vision and live up to that versus living from an inner authentic place and not really caring what other people, <laughs> how other people interact with that. And so for myself, knowing that if I'm feeling just down or if I'm feeling off, I recognize very easily how social media is a go-to to check out or to escape or to, you know, not really tap in with how I'm actually feeling, but just kind of, oh, let me see how someone else is, is living life. And so for myself, I try and be very mindful of, again, this is a tool. This is something that, you know, I want to use kind of almost like a work device. So during the weekday, I feel a bit more freedom to like jump on, jump off, but also during the workday I'm working. So it's kind of a safeguard of, I just don't have as much time to be on my phone in general. And then on the weekends to be completely off social media, as if it was, you know, a break from my job, a break from work to kind of get back in that rhythm of, I don't have to be on this thing all the time and making sure I'm making space for myself to outside of the chatter, outside of the noise, outside of the news feeds not getting so far from how I am feeling and what I think and what's happening in my brain and in my heart so that when I do then dive back into social media, I feel like I'm able to weigh, okay, this is new information or this is what, you know, this is triggering me in certain ways. Well, why is this triggering me? And then using it almost as, as a different kind of tool for more self-reflection. So I, I try and keep those boundaries so that I'm never so distanced from myself and how I'm feeling or what I'm seeking 
what validation I'm seeking in myself so that social media just consumes all of that. Yeah, it sounds like that intention and yourself, like your awareness. And and when you lose that sense of awareness and just it all kind of blurs together is when when it can get murky. Yeah. And, and I'm and I'm curious too. I mean, I mean, you're in this space of you know with with your jobs, but and I think like you mentioned, there's some good to it. And I, I I do agree. It just has to be so intentional. How do you feel about social media as a tool for change and meaningful impact for not just individuals but also for brands? Oh, I, I do think it's a valuable, valuable tool. I think in an era kind of at the same time through the pandemic, through just culture, it's really easy to silo yourself. And so social media can be a negative tool for that if you're only engaging with things, only following the followed, the referred content. And oh, if you like this, you'd like this. And you can go so easily down the rabbit hole and isolate yourself. But again, if you want to use it as that excavating tool, as a mirror to help you grow, I do think social media can be very powerful to hear from people your life would never you know, automatically bump up against and you wouldn't naturally hear from. And so I think when you bring that genuine, like humble sense of, wow, I had no idea that this was someone else's experience or wow, like this person just shared in a way that was very vulnerable and real. I need to sit with that and hear that and let that change me. I think again, it's it's that mentality you bring to it. If you are looking to just be defensive and to state your viewpoint and to make sure people know that you're right, it's probably not gonna be the best dynamic for you. But if you are genuinely coming to, to the platform and being like, wow, that that's uncomfortable for me. Like I feel called out listening to that, but I'm going to sit with it and like, let myself be called out and let myself listen. Um, and, and notice why do I feel like I need to resist this or why am I getting angry that this person is angry? And, you know, so I've used it personally as a tool and I found it very helpful in, in just personal growth and hearing from other people and, and with brands, I do think there's an element where like to use brand and air quotes, it's such a tricky thing nowadays when a brand is trying to be a human being and like have a personality and have a point of view. And it's just so tricky. And I really feel for entrepreneurs and business leaders in general trying to navigate that. I don't think there's any one way to do that right. And it can become, it, it can seem like social media just becomes this tool to have like your activist wing. And you know, you, you're able to appease all these different groups just by saying certain things without really saying what you as a brand stand for. And so in that, I think, again, just trying to be authentic and honest and engage and learn and grow and show the journey along the way, show that process of, of learning and shifting and changing. I think that's really important. There's a lot there because there's when you're talking about like if you just use social media, kind of kind of reinforce your your rightness. And I'm like, yeah, there's a part of me that like, I'm going to find more people because I'm like, I am right. But it could also be a place where you can spin out too mm-hmm. and go down rabbit holes, trying to figure things out. And if you just use social media for that space. Um, but I, I love the accessibility that it's offered for a lot of people that wouldn't be able to be heard mm-hmm. and have folks who have voices. I mean, that's been really exciting for me, but really playing around with curating who you listen to. Yeah. And how and even just how you engage with it, how you see it as a, I'm going to check in, I'm going to check out of it versus it's your default to work through things. And then for and, and when you talk about brands, it's brands are trying to be humans and this kind of uh, this 
social justice wing <laughs> of, of it versus this is who we are. I mean, I, I do see a lot of people calling BS to that. Mm-hmm. There isn't, you, there, I'm not seeing businesses and brands getting away with that like they used to. Maybe they yeah. still get away with it, but people are are not as excited about it. And and I, I do I do see that. I see that even just with um you know in, in, in theories too and in different places like um you know this in terms of healing like for trauma I've been doing this training with uh Resman Menachem and he uses somatic abolitionist theory and he's trained in somatic experiencing and he's like, you know, that's a great theory, but they saw the trauma and racism connection as like an aside. It's no, it's center. It's center to trauma and everything. It's it's at, it's interconnected at center. We can't have it be this side thing. So I think we often will do that, especially those of us in uh, positions of of privilege and dominant culture here in the states, at least that that this a side thing, and it's going to be a thing, a box to check versus. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. And a lot of people struggle with that. And a lot of businesses and brands struggle with that. So with that piece, how do you, I mean, how do you guide those that you're working with to say, no, this isn't just a box to check and a thing to do versus how do we make this who we are? What's been your voice in the, in the businesses and brands you've worked with around that? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a hard conversation. It's, it's a tricky subject and it's a both and (laughs) like at the same time I do, there's this tension of, we want brands just as a, as a culture, as a society, even generationally, this changes a bit, but we want brands to kind of be our, our light, our lampposts, our beacons, our, you know, I think we've, we've replaced maybe church culture or other communities of different generations and now brands and and commercialism have has become this place where we find ourselves and we find our freedom and so with that you, i think that's why you're seeing this backlash of a lot of of angst and and frustration being directed at brands because you don't really know where else to put it and so working with businesses i think having that healthy measure of well yes we need to have integrity in the decisions we make and then behind the scenes as people, it's almost, it's almost like, I, I hope brands are just sort of, I hope they are seen for what they are as brands, that they are these, these places where we engage, we have like a transaction and exchange of goods, but they're not the, the heartbeat of our society. They're not what, what personally kind of dictates our identity quite in the same way. And so with that, I don't know if this is just asking in general for society to kind of grow up or wake up a little bit more, but it's almost like seeing a brand and then realizing like, okay, that that's, that's a, an object, but that's not dictating the worth that I have as an individual or as a community. And so trying to do both the inner work as individuals, as human beings that run businesses that are parts of these brands, however, we can best foster that realization of, Okay, as as a community, yes, call out brands that are doing obvious damage or, you know, harming the environment or people groups or oppressing, you know, call out the greed, call out the the lack of integrity in certain places, absolutely. But then at the same time, how are we also making way for the individuals affected by that to also achieve their own growth? And so I don't know if this is exactly answering your question. It's kind of still a nebulous thought in my mind. It's such a complex process, but I think both being true to that inner voice as an individual to know I'm not going to give all of my 
my identity and let it get wrapped up in this brand, whether that's as a consumer or as the person working as the brand. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It's brave and bold work to stay the course when the future's so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that's both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time's of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching's for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I feel like the nuance, because what I took away from that, so let me know if this is where you were going, is we have this response to what's happening, right? And then we have to comment on it. I'm thinking as a brand. And this came up a lot too with a lot of solopreneurs and small business owners that were like, we need to say something, do something. Mm -hmm. How do we respond, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're saying, okay, yes, that's a piece of it. But then what's our long-term investment in really moving forward change? Yeah. Is what I heard, like what, you know, helping, whether it's individuals, uh, communities, uh, populations, what are, what are we doing? Not just saying we stand against this or stand for this check right. versus what are we doing with our voices, with our resources, with our platform to then sustain, to be a part of sustained change. So right. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. I think, I think that's spot on. I think trying to have that, that awareness of, we know that people will be angry and people will call out things, but also sometimes the person who's, who's pointing the finger, they're dealing with their own hurt and their own trauma and their own, you know, they have nowhere else to go. So they feel like they have to lash out at the brand and being able to receive that on whatever side you are and just hold more empathy and understanding for, for that angry voice as, as well as do the humble work as well of being like, Ooh, I actually, yeah, you know what, we should take this feedback into consideration and really examine what's, what's feeding our business and who we've been speaking to. And if that needs to change. I think you said something really big there, examining who's feeding our business. And we can even think about that as individuals, who's feeding my opinions, Mm. who's feeding my feelings, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, not beyond food, but you know, like what's like, what's stirring up because, and I just learned this in politics and PRs, my foundation, right? We, we are moved to change when we feel comfortable, right? Mm. 
And so we we vote when we're afraid. We don't vote when we're comfortable. Mm-hmm. And watching how you know campaigns would then do their ads and what they'd focus on and how they do stuff on the ground to you know the, the behind the scenes stuff, the grassroots stuff, just to stir things up. But like, hey, feel good and vote for me. You know, it doesn't work <laughs> right. that way. Or, you know, and so it, and it, you brought up this thing too about brands, like almost this place where a place of church, a place of what, a place of worship, right? Mm. And what are we worshiping? I, I, w- I had a mentor say to me, "Whatever I think about the most is what I'm worshiping." Mm. And is that what I want to be worshiping? Mm. And it doesn't even have to be something faith based, but like that's what I'm I'm giving adulation to in my time and you know, the best of me too. Mm. And and brands want that. Like, obviously there's a lot of bottom line, but I, there is this interesting tension of, can we do a toe in the water and be cool enough? Can we do this enough, but still not go out of our comfort zone? And I'm wondering if you have you, do you, have you sit, sat with founders and, and directors and folks that are at the heart of businesses and brands and said, listen, we, this isn't just an aside how do we move this to who we are and com- how do we want to communicate that? Have you been in any conversations like that? And how how have leaders responded to your direction in that area? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it, it's, and again, I feel like I'm just constantly saying it's tricky and it's, that's hard and it's a balance because it is because when you're, it's like, we're using these businesses as our new tools of, of social change and social progress and individual progress and evolution. And so I, I think in those moments where you're having maybe a cultural response or you're trying to think about how does this brand or how does this business cater or respond to this issue at the same time, it's like, but this is also a business. And so at what point does the heart and the, the personal journey and the individual and that almost like spiritual side take over? from the fact that, well, this is a business and it's trying to make money and it's trying to have a profit and it's trying to be successful and it's trying to, you know, X, Y, Z. It's like, that. it's always a dance. I've yet to see a business that is perfectly integrated with its like deep, you know, holistic interpersonal dynamics. And it's like super successful making all this money, giving back. I just don't know if that exists. It's like the, it's like, the essential masculine feminine energy, you know, it's, it, there's always going to be this dance back and forth between the both of it. And so I think for, for leaders and brands that I've worked with, it kind of comes back to, well, what feels authentic and, and with integrity in this moment. And also what, what is our goal? Like, let's clearly define, well, what's the goal in this context? If we're trying to clearly raise revenue, let's sort of look at these other levers and maybe we pull back on using manipulative tactics. Not that I've ever worked with a company that is manipulative, but just saying like, how are we going about that in a way that maybe detaches a bit more from the personal to focus on the practical and then vice versa. Like if something happened, you know, a product wasn't selling or um, there was a ton of feedback on a certain post or an article, then maybe use that to be like, oh, well, wait, hold on. Maybe we're really out of touch with the personal side here and the heart we're bringing to this business. So it kind of is always going back and forth dependent on well, what's the goal in this context? Trying to be really clear about what are we trying to achieve? And sometimes that is very simply, we need, you know, Q1 sales are down or we're trying to push this, this opportunity or this sale because as a business, you have to make business decisions. You're not a nonprofit. You're not a community organization per se. So if you're a business, you're trying to make money. 
And that's where it gets, it's complicated and complex. Um, at what expense, right? Um, and, and I think about too, a lot of leaders and, and business owners around, especially around social media and responding to what's been going on. It's just been so many things happening in our world, really hard, really important things, really troublesome things have been happening. And sometimes I see folks like, I don't want to say anything that will draw negative attention. And that sometimes has silenced them into kind of like, I don't know what to, they couldn't move forward, move back where they felt very boxed in uh, because that was like, I, I don't want to do conflict. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it, part of it was their own nervous system saying, I, I, I don't think I can handle this and seeing sometimes how folks can be so vicious, especially in the online space. It isn't just like, hello, brand. Hello, human. (laughs) I disagree with you. I'd like to give you my three points of what's different. (laughs) It it is dehumanizing. It is devaluing. And it can go to livelihood and also to safety issues where, you know, just story upon story about that. So there's a lot of folks that are like, am I venturing into a space where I stand out for what I believe in or venture into a space to say, hey, we need to change what we represent, who we are, but we may not do it perfectly. I'm scared if we don't do it perfectly, we'll only lose our revenue, but lose our, our safety. Yeah. And, and so I'm just c- curious what you've seen around that piece around the fear of rocking the boat versus, you know, taking a stand and where the intersection with social media shows up. Yeah. I think there has to be a hard line for a leader in that space to be able to separate themselves, to know that, okay, even if this business fails, I'm not a failure. Like at the end of the day, who we are, in the businesses we show up as, the jobs that we do, you know, whatever that job is, that is not representative truly of the worth we carry as individuals. And I think to the extent we want brands, again, to be those things we worship, to be those things that then reflect back to ourselves, our worth, our safety, the extent that's going to shift us off of our center is the extent that we haven't gotten in touch with that ourselves. And so for a leader to enter into the conversation, to enter into the conflict and come out broken and confused and at a loss on the other side, that doesn't also have to be the final word. And as individuals show up, as we all show up and just sort of do this is why I'm such an advocate of just inner work and having your own sense of healthy authenticity and hearing that inner voice and doing that inner work on yourself. That is how we truly change culture and communities because then we can handle when people come at us with their own stuff and their own processes that they're working through. And Yeah. As I mean, when the stakes are higher, they're absolutely higher. If you're running a business, if you are facing maybe public um, rejection or public crucifixion, um, but also to know that even if this were to happen, I still have my sense of self inside that nobody else can get to. And that's where, that's where I am. Well, you're speaking my professional love language (laughs) right now, because I do think we have to do that inner work to be able to weather the vulnerability of staying true to who we are and what we believe and not knowing how that's going to be received. And, and again, when, when you're a business owner, the stakes are high, you've got many employees, you've got folks you serve. So a lot to think about, but it's amazing to not engage out of fear and then become complicit to that or just to play it safe. And I, and it's a dance. It's, it's such a dance with all that. So thank you for walking around the nuance of this, this very complex issue. I want to shift to talking about, 
your experience at Darling Magazine. You were a founding core team member there, and I was a Kickstarter <laughs> uh, supporter of that and a writer for them. I love, love, love that brand and all that they're doing. And you're responsible at the beginning for all their online content. And I know working at a startup, especially one that was challenging industry norms around magazine images and content, how they were shown, can be so exciting, but also consuming. So after almost five years at the magazine, it went through that you were there for almost five years. It went through some big changes and you, along with many of the other leaders were let go. And I wonder if you could share what was going through your head when that happened. Yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was really, it was really sad. You know, I think to have a, a job that you get to show up at every day and feel like, oh, this, this aligns both personally and professionally. And everyone who I worked with, I loved. And it was such a family and a team dynamic that was really wonderful. And so when, yeah, when, you know, different business decisions were made and, and the editorial staff was let go, it was like there, there was an initial shock. It almost felt like a breakup or um, something that, whoa, suddenly this was here and then it wasn't. And I think through that, that's where I was also really able to learn, whew, okay, like I am not my job. <laughs> and even though that job gave me great opportunities, I connected with amazing people. I really loved what I was doing. Even that as a business needed to make business decisions. And, you know, my heart really goes out to the leaders of, of the company who were also weighing with these really hard decisions. And because it's a business that had to make these business decisions, I think I learned, okay, even if I no longer have this job, I'm still me and I still have to work through this. But it was really hard. I did kind of face all those questions of, you know, well, who, how am I relevant now? And what am I doing now? What's next? Like, where do I go from here? Because Darling was so wonderful and I just love my job. Like, how could I, you know, show up in another job that I love just as much? And, you know, just at the same time, it ended up being just a good, well, I believe anything can always be good in, in, in the long run and a growth opportunity, even if it feels devastating and uncomfortable in the moment which it definitely did. We, my husband and I had just moved back to LA. We didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know what our income streams were going to be. It was a real question mark moment. And then to also face, you know, just the loss of this job that was no one's, you know, fault. It was no, it was no, you know, I wasn't fired. It wasn't this like tense thing. It just really felt like loss and having to process that and go through that in the moment because you're, you know, these are people you see day in, day out. This is what you're doing day in, day out. And to suddenly in that context, not do that anymore. It did. It was a loss that I had to process. And looking back on that transition from a job you truly loved, what did this experience teach you about yourself and how did it inform your next steps in your career? I think that I, that there's more to do that I don't really know all there is about myself and all the ways I can show up in the world, even if I think I do, even if I think I have a really clear idea of what I'm about and what I can offer, I can always grow. There's always more. There's always something new to like change and grow. And as much as I loved writing and working for Darling, I think if I'm honest with myself, it was, it was, I don't want to say easy, but it just, it, it felt very effortless sometimes because I did believe so much in what Darling was doing and writing in the voice and being able to edit. And, you know, it just, it came very naturally and easy. And so being able to challenge myself again and write for different outlets or step into different industries, different genres, 
I kind of missed that. And it was a good reminder of, oh, right. Like it's good to be challenged. It's good to step into something and be unfamiliar with it and have to learn and grow. And I think leaving Darling and then unexpectedly, I didn't plan to be freelance for four and a half years. It just sort of happened and realizing, oh, wow, there is, there's also, until you're in a new experience, you may not realize what a previous experience had given you. And the things that I learned being a part of Darling for as long as I was and in the industry and just the changing culture of the time, I didn't realize how much I had learned and how much I had grown until I was in a new environment. And sometimes you don't naturally put yourself in a new environment. Like you were saying, to go back to that when you're comfortable, you don't really need to change stuff. So until you're uncomfortable, you may not realize what you still have to offer and gain as well. Wow. I'm just sitting with that. Because we're not going to be like, you know, I am just too comfortable in this job I love that just feels effortless. So I need to change, says nobody. I mean, I, I mean, maybe there's some folks out there, but I mean, and so this, 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 that's powerful. And just to see, I want to transition out to where you're at today, because you recently uprooted your family. You're like, you just had a baby, move from Southern California to Texas for a new job with Magnolia. Mm-hmm. I mean, Magnolia. <laughs> I'm doing like hand gestures here. It's like the Becca. What what was the trade-off you are wearing weighing as you considered this offer? Oh gosh. It's funny we like begin and end this conversation with big decisions. Cause this really felt like another one of those big decisions that I wish was clear cut and just made sense. And you know, when I talk about feeling into my gut, both things felt right. It felt right to stay in LA. It felt right to you know, never leave California, but it also felt right to take this job. And it felt right, like the opportunity felt right. And it excited me. And that was really, it kind of worked backwards from there where initially when I was presented with the opportunity and I read about the role, I was just like, oh, geez, this sounds great. This sounds exactly like what I do and what I love and what I'm good at, as well as seeing that growth edge of, oh, to be back full time again, to be in the inner workings of this huge company that has all these exciting, you know, outshoots of new growth in all these different directions and being able to learn again, you know, being freelance, working for myself for four years, I'd miss that like personal professional growth, that challenging learning from other people who are experts in their field all the time. And so I had been feeling like I do miss that. And I want to give myself that opportunity. And both my husband and I, because we had just had the baby too, we were in this new season of really reevaluating, okay, what is our long game? What is our long term? And so when this opportunity came up, it was kind of like, oh, do we make this decision maybe sooner than we would have wanted to and like deal with the the sadness and the stress and all of that goes into a big move? Or do we like stay again, stay with what's comfortable, but then in a year, two years, miss that opportunity because that's not what's before us right now. So we really looked at, well, what's before us right now? What's the long-term goals that we have in the future? And is what's before us right now going to get us closer to that or take us away from that? And so ultimately we did make the decision. It worked out really well to be able to be in Austin, which is a great city and commute to Waco once a week. The team that I work with is really wonderful and flexible and very accommodating. And also my husband's job was able to transfer. So for the first time in our marriage, we both had these full-time jobs and it just felt like it aligned so well that despite the sadness of having to move and, you know, the unknown ground of Texas, um, we just decided to go for it. I'm curious now that you've been in this job for a little while, how do you bring your values into your work right now? 
Um, well, I think it goes back to what I was saying of just being truly authentic to myself. I'm not trying to be cliche when I say that, but to really honor the fact that when I show up for myself, when I give myself space to process how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, I don't have to put that responsibility on anybody else. And I can really show up for other people as well. So as, as a leader, as someone who's, um, you know, mentoring other writers, other people on my team, and then also responding to people above me, it really helps to not take criticism negatively when you are, are doing the work on yourself. And when you're able to sit with, okay, like, yeah, I'm, I'm an imperfect human being. I can't do all the things well. So as I process in my own way and, you know, kind of away from work, making sure I'm checking in with myself and, and how I'm feeling and thinking and growing as a person, then I'm able to show up and be that for other people and be not be so sensitive or so reactive in environments so that we can always focus on what is the goal? What's the common goal that we're sharing as a work environment right now on this project? Or, And then also just as a human being as well and developing relationships and friendships with people. I think it's powerful throughout our conversation. You've really brought in this kind of piece of, you know, doing work and also externally and also internally. That seems to be a dance that you really live and do well um, and checking in, what do I need to do personally, not just what skill I need to do or what task I need to execute, but who do I need to be and how do I work on that? And I I just really appreciate that a lot. And I I feel like it's so hard to, it, it just feels like that's a process you've had in your life for a long time. And I think a lot of people haven't cultivate that because they haven't been taught to or told Mm -hmm. to. It's like, it's all about what you do, Mm -hmm. not who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I really appreciate to see that woven into this conversation today. And, And I'm curious, what does success look like to you today? And how has it changed from what you originally thought? Bringing it, bringing it back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, I definitely thought success in previous, previous seasons of life was, you know, making X amount of money, having being that successful doctor, being able to point to, this is how I'm helping people. This is how I'm helping my bank account. This is how I'm making good on my college loans. And, you know, having a lot of these external barometers that I kind of thought, no matter what success should be something that anybody can look at your life and be like, oh yeah, that's successful. As if success is this universal standard. And if anything now, maybe the simplest answer is I realize success is entirely individual and there's no such thing as universal success. It it really comes down to how you as an individual are thriving and feel in touch with your, your true authentic self. That's, that's what I would say. So that's what I try and do for myself. So I have some quick fire questions to wrap up our conversation. Um, Are you ready? Okay. What are you reading right now? Oh, well with a baby, um, not, <laughs> not, nothing entirely. I have about five different books I've started right now. I'm reading like a Joan Didion's first novel. I'm reading a book called Anamkara, like about um, Celtic mysticism. I'm reading, I always am reading Mary Oliver's book of poems, um, Richard Rohr devotional. I'm reading a book about Eastern European food. So it's, that's, it's, there's always depends on the day and the page I have earmarked. <laughs> I think that was like a beautiful kind of like, a moose bouche of you, like a little, a little Didion, yes. a little Eastern European, a little spirituality. I mean, it was like, there we go. Oh, I'll take <laughs> what, it. What song are you playing on repeat right now? Oh, I am like 
terrible with music. There's a, um, I don't like listen to songs. I listen to either like classical or like different like frequency tones because I can't write or do stuff with when I'm listening to words. But there's this um, Max Richter, who's like a composer. He has a spring on like a, a basically his version of Vivaldi's spring. He has it's like this beautiful crescendoing symphony sounds and it's lovely based on four seasons spring vivaldi i can send it to you it's wonderful please do best tv show or movie you've seen recently oh well it's this is so this is actually where this song was part of the soundtrack there's the hbo version of elena ferrante's neapolitan neapolitan novels my brilliant friend we just finished the most recent season and it's it's just lovely it's italy and naples and 70s and it's great. The vibe. I feel the vibe. <laughs> what is your favorite 80s movie or show or piece of pop culture? 80s. Um, well, one of my favorite movies of all time is When Harry Met Sally. I think that was like 80, 88, 89. Just squeak it in there. But yeah, that's one of my favorites. What is your mantra right now? Oh, probably uh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, a minute wait a minute before you react or just... Also, I just mentally need a minute because I'm still not sleeping from the baby. So I just wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> what is an unpopular opinion you hold? Ooh, I like this. Probably a lot of them, but I will say that I believe in alternate realities. <laughs> I'm going to let that one there. I love it. I love it. So did so did my um, tenth grade AP world history oh. teacher too. Yes, I know he was fascinating. <laughs> Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Oh, my son! I have to say, my baby boy. Absolutely, there's nothing like the little people in our life that call us up and call us in yep. for sure. Yep. Ziza, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing a bit of your heart and your wisdom. I really, really appreciate it. And I know many people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, pleasure. It's all mine. I appreciate it. It was great to chat with you. I love this quote by Viola Davis. She says, there's got to be a voice deep within you that's untouched by definitions. And it is there that you become divinely who you are. Doing the work to discover our divine nature has become essential work these days. This inner work can be dismissed or seen as self-indulgent, but when done with the goal to both heal while increasing your positive impact on the world around us becomes a powerful motivator. And a steady practice of inner work is a lifelong practice not based on fixing, but built on relationship, respect, and curiosity. Ziza kept coming back to her own inner work practice, honoring her intuition, her values, even when others around her did not understand her choices. And she continues to regularly check in and listen to her inner system, even when the stakes are high, so she can be aligned internally and with how she leads I'm curious, what makes up your inner work practice? What gets in the way of you staying in curiosity in the face of fear and uncertainty? And how can you deepen your inner work and develop a lifelong practice of checking within? If we learn to see discomfort as data and not what defines us, then our inner system will relax and trust us to lead without overwhelm. 
And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.